This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Today, I'm speaking with David Souza of the Sweet Potato Spirits in Atwater, California. Thanks for joining me today, David. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So, David, tell me about your distillery. What are you building out here in Atwater? You know, really, we're building a farm-to-bottle concept. You know, everything we do from our farm, I bring into the distillery, and we make alcohol out of it. So, we're in California Central Valley. It's a agriculturally dominated region, one of the largest in the world, <laughs> if I understand correctly. Correct. Why build a distillery out here in the middle of farm country? You know, it's we've been farming out here since the 1900s, and it's just everything that's readily available to make alcohol for what we need. It's mm-hmm. right here. I can source it off of our own farm, and it just made perfect sense for products that we can't go to market with. Wow. So you actually, um, on top of running a distillery, also manage a, a family farm as well? Correct. So we, yeah. Tell me I, about that. Um, you're, if, if I understand, you're like the fifth generation to be out here. I'm right? actually the fourth. Fourth, uh, okay. Yeah, so Corbin, which is our brand, is my son, and he's the fifth generation. Oh, okay. So I've fourth generation and been um, farming since I was seven years old, and kind of started doing it on my own as well. On a side note for when I was about 15, my dad said, hey, it's time to learn how to do this and kind of take the bull by the horns. And so it's kind of, I've You're always- 15, it's time to get out in the fields. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I've been working in the field since seven, but actually pushed me on my own to help me learn how to manage. Wow. So to learn the management side of it. And, you know, it was very instrumental, but him and my grandfather both and my uncle Mike and, you know, teaching me, like, it's not just, you're going to take the family business or you need to learn how to run it. So you need to have your own little business and and figure out how to manage money and do that. And so it was been a very instrumental part of my upbringing. Oh man, I bet. So then family must play a large role in, in running your distillery as a result. Now you're the Corbin, you, you said that's the name of your spirits. It's also the name of your son, isn't that correct? Correct. So yeah, he, it's, it's kind of funny. He's the fifth generation. And when the day he was born was actually the first day we were running the first batch of sweet potato vodka. No kidding, still. really? Yeah. So we, we were run, the first batch is coming off and I get a call that, you know, his mom's in labor and <laughs> we go to the hospital and yeah, it's, it's kind of been... It's like, oh shoot, what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty well, clear I what you do. Yeah. I had to call Sharon, my office manager, <laughs> yeah. like, do somebody um, needs to come down here and watch us, I gotta go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, that is really incredible. What's it kind of like to take a fourth generation farm then and kind of move it in a radically different direction and kind of add this distillery thing on top of it? I mean, the way you're kind of describing it, it, it there's a natural progression to all of this. You raise produce, you've been selling it uh, at market, you've been selling sweet potatoes at market, and now you're just finding a new use for, for what your family's been growing all along. Was there kind of a, did you have to convince anyone uh, that this is where you wanted to take the family brand? Um not really. I mean, they've all been supportive, but it was kind of my own thing. Like I took my money, invested it, and I've had a lot of adventures, I should ventures say, and da- adventures. down the pipeline. But I think this is really one that they all could kind of see, you know, and, and more proud of the fact that it was taking the family business and kind of putting my two worlds together from my experience outside the family business and kind of bringing that together with my experience with the family business. And 
it's really kind of helped me find myself in a way and, and made me a much more driven and kind of entrepreneurial spirit because kind of taking my two worlds and blending them together. Yeah, well, could you kind of talk about that a little bit? So what got you here? You didn't never leave the farm, right? You you went out and you've had other yeah, so I, careers always, and pursuits and now you're, you're kind of back here. What was kind of that journey like for you? Uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, I, I never actually quit farming. So I did always farm and I would spend, you know, sometimes the slower months in, in Las Vegas where I had a restaurant franchises and then eventually started a small nightclub promoting company and that kind of doing the party planning and seeing like that is really what led me into making a better booze because there was so much junk on the market (laughs) for lack (laughs) of a better term hangovers and i'm like and so my counterparts and friends that i worked with there it's like you know they could be instrumental in helping me bring a brand to market in vegas because they had the powers of be if i could actually create a brand. So that's kind of what I set out to do. And that was the plan. It didn't all go as planned, but here we are today. And it's uh, actually worked out, I feel like, in a actually better process. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really unique perspective then that you probably brought to starting up your still for the first time was you had experience on the other side of the equation. You knew what it was to have to go out and sell a spirit or, you know, to a, to a party or whatever. So you kind of knew what flavors people liked. You had some market experience. You didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to make vodka. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, knowing the, the alcohol side of it from the promotion standpoint is really what I was in and, and understanding that, you know, people get tired of waking up with a hangover. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I know I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, just, creating a better and unique product and you know I would have never got in the vodka business had I hadn't had something unique like a sweet potato to work with and being the first one to do that but my goal was not to really stay in the vodka business I really just wanted to build a whiskey brand but you know that takes years to age so we started putting whiskey away and aging sweet potato alcohol but you have to start somewhere so vodka is obviously the natural approach while everybody starts there and so having a unique sweet potato vodka i thought oh this is going to be easy to sell and yeah definitely grabbing the shelf space and fighting against the big brands for that is definitely no easy task so so kind of run down for me really quickly what do you make out here what are your products you have the sweet potato vodka currently our first market product was sweet potato vodka. Then we just recently launched our rye whiskey. And now 100% rye whiskey comes from the farm. Now we're getting ready to launch a blended whiskey, which is 80% sweet potato barrel-aged alcohol, as well as 20% rye. And the reason we did that, I wanted to make the world's first sweet potato whiskey. Government law says you can't call it whiskey if it's not from grain. So a blended whiskey only has to contain 20% uh, grain alcohol, so that's why we're doing the blended. Oh, gotcha. And then we. So have, you are allowed to call it a blended whiskey because it's blended in with. Because it has twenty percent grain whiskey in it, so we have that, and then we'll have a hundred percent barrel aged sweet potato liqueur. So basically distilled the same as whiskey, barrel aged for up to three years but then added a little bit of notes of cinnamon, vanilla, and then some brown sugar. But instead of being like a fireball or a Southern Comfort where it has 18% sugar, we're only putting... <laughs> we're talking about hangovers. Yeah, we're putting 3%. Oh, okay. So you still get a real whiskey flavor, but just a hint of sweetness to be a liqueur. But the great thing with our sweet potato alcohol is it's naturally sweeter. So it hence tastes like it has more sugar in it, but it really doesn't. So that'll kind of help you with the hangover side of it as well if you're doing shots. <laughs> <laughs> 
So then, on the one hand, it's exciting to be the first person to use sweet potato to make vodka and other bases, but there also has to be, kind of like what you were saying, there has to be a market education that has to happen, right? You walk into a liquor store, or you even call up the TTB to get your label approval, and you say, sweet potato vodka. Yeah. And they're like, what is that? No one's ever done that before. (laughs) How do I market this? How do I approve this? Was there kind of a big education step being the first one to do this? Definitely. And just especially from the distribution standpoint. So the labeling and stuff we went through, I didn't, you know, I kind of worked my way through that. It wasn't as, it was difficult, but not as difficult as the permitting. So the permitting of the distillery and the Federal government was actually fairly simple. Local and state governments is a little more controlled. So you really had to, you know, go through the hoops to really get the the license, especially here in California. But and the labels for certain things are harder than others. So it sweet potato vodka was it was funny. We got rejected for six months because they didn't want us to put that on the label because they thought people would think it was flavored. And so we went round and round until we could show proof of why we needed that and then they allowed it there was a thriving artificially flavored sweet potato vodka market out there yeah well (laughs) just joking yeah, yeah exactly but i think what really did push them with that was the fact that there is a huge flavor market so i think that's kind of you know it made sense to me but you also have other brands that say what kind of vodka they are. So I think you have to leave it up. Sometimes you got to leave it up to the smartness of the customer to just realize it, what it is. <laughs> yeah, Because sure. I don't think that really it's an people... concept. Yeah, leave yeah, it up to I, the consumer I, to make I, an educated decision. Yeah. Well, and I don't think... I think most people are going to think, why would you make a f- sweet potato flavored right. vodka? I mean, <laughs> really, what's that going to taste like? <laughs> yeah, what's that? Huh. Maybe I'll buy a bottle and see what that tastes like. Yeah, yeah. so... You know, and, and yeah. we, that's the first thing we tell people. It doesn't taste like sweet potatoes but it you know it's just a really smooth and quality vodka so yeah what kind of characteristics then does sweet potatoes really lend to your base product then it's actually what's funny is it's got a more of a a nuttier flavor so the sweet potato varieties that i use i use a blend it actually gives you more of a nuttiness than it does what you would probably consider a sweet potato flavor Uh, it's got a lot of earthy tones to it but nuttiness and then just kind of a hint of sweetness more of a buttery caramely finish but not sweet by any means like sugary but just sweeter than your average vodka so it's really subtle subtle notes you were kind of mentioning it earlier. What was it like to uh, then go through and get your TTB approval for everything? Did you work with a team of people or did you just kind of sit down with a stack of forms and you know, I, hammer through I, it on yourself? I called a couple attorneys and when I got the price for what they wanted to do, I was like, I'm going to do this myself. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they, you know, roughly $10,000 to fill out all the paperwork and there was no guarantee that I would get a license. So I was like, eh. I'll do it myself. And it took me a year, a year and a half in the evenings, just filling out and trying to go through the make sense of what they were asking. Because, you know, if a lot of the questions, it could be multiple answers. So it took me a long time. and, And then when I was finished, I then hired an attorney to take it to the TTB. And it was funny because she actually called me and she's like, I've never had anybody fill this out themselves right the first time. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, which was funny, but I'm like, but it didn't happen overnight. It did almost take me two years to do it. (laughs) You really took your time. It took my time, but I, you know, and as much as the patience that I had to have with it, it really was a learning experience and it was good that I did it that way because it helped me understand a lot of the rules and regulations that I otherwise probably would have kind of said, eh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. That's what it says. That's what it says. So it really helped me understand what I was getting myself into. 
So beyond your TTB permits, you know, you are located out here in a rural area. Did that kind of present its own issues uh, for things like water supply, what to do with your waste and all that? You know, actually, it, it's worked out better because being in a rural area, we have a lot of dairy farms. We have the actual our own property. So everything that we do out here is completely recycled for the most part. All of the mash that comes from the still when we're done with it. We either take it down to the local dairy and we feed it to the cows, or we can actually put it back on the ground for fertilizer. So depending on the necessity of what's going on that day, that's what we do. All the water that we that are still uses, we actually recycle that water and we either cook with it or it goes back into our steam boiler to recycle for further use in, in the production side. Oh, wow. Okay. So you have a method of capturing that and re-injecting yes. it into So 90% of the product in our facility is typically recycled. So we have very little waste. Wow, that's Which, really cool. If you're in the city, you really don't have that availability. That you start putting trucking labor into things, and you know, then it gets cost prohibitive to recycle. But for us, it's it's a natural element and what we do, and it, it works out really well. Well, and it kind of you were saying uh, before we started recording that that you kind of extend that one more direction, and that's with even where your rye comes from. Even that is used is raised for a reason on the farm, and then reused yeah. by you. Could you kind of yeah? It really that? wasn't yeah. yeah. So the rye came to play. You know, we've been farming rye as long as sweet potatoes, and the rye came into play not really as a obviously as for making whiskey or even for eating because most people eat wheat or white bread. Rye was instrumental for us in the fact that in our sandy soils, the night the heavy nitrogen use of a sweet potato, it can actually leach through the sandy soils. And to prevent it from going into the groundwater or losing that fertilizer, we plant our variety Merced rye, which actually has a root system that goes down 13 feet and will bring that nitrogen fertilizer back to the surface so we can reuse it next year. Oh, okay. And it helps your sweet potatoes grow that yeah, way. Yeah, it helps the sweet potatoes grow. And then yeah. it also, because of the, and then the, the rye, so... How it works is the sweet potatoes that um, the fields that are being planted in sweet potatoes next year, the rye actually gets dissed back into the ground before it seeds. And that's a green fertilizer. So all that nitrogen gets put back in the ground. If we're not farming and that ground's going to lay fallow, that's the actual seed that we harvest to plant next year and to make whiskey with. So we don't harvest all of the acres of rye that we plant. The fields that are going to be farmed the next year actually get dissed back in and we harvest the stuff that's sitting out. That's such a great example, though, of just, you, you already were using it, it was already out there, wait, now I can turn it into another yeah. cash well, crop. Yeah, another, and, yeah, and when I first started working with it, it was very <laughs> difficult, so I kind of gave up on it for a while, and we put a few barrels away, and it's, you know, finding the to grind it, and all, it, it was almost, you know, because this isn't a real grain fed area so like the midwest where there's tons of grain facilities it's just it's not big here in california so it was hard for me as a small guy to really get it man you get it ground up and figure out how to use it but we worked our ways through it and now we're rocking and rolling and producing it as fast as we can <laughs> <laughs> which if anyone hears any background noise that's them producing it right behind us yeah oh, we're yeah. actually bottling today <laughs> oh man so then kind of looking back now that you, so four years ago, you fire up your still for the first time after two years of doing permits and developing, you know, kind of your mash and all that kind of stuff. Now now that your business is underway, what was sort of your biggest hurdle just to get it going at the, at the very beginning? You know, the big distribution. So because of the alcohol rules in California, every state has its own rules, but we're not allowed to self-distribute. 
not any bit at all. So, which was funny because when I filed for my federal permits, I filed for a distributor's license. Well, I should call it a rectifier's license, which actually allows you to self-distribute your product. The federal government let me, they okayed it. So I had my permits, This it went through the, the ABC and the state sent me my permits and they said, okay, now you got to hang your sign up and for 30 days and then once 30 days passes, you'll have your license. Everything's good to go, right? So we're 15 days from opening our doors and ready to rock and roll and they come and do the inspection, make sure their sign's up and they're like, uh, the girl's like, I don't think you can have a type seven and a type four license. And I'm like, well, you guys gave it to me. Like, yeah. <laughs> so did the federal government. What's the big deal? And she's like, well, I, I don't think that's legal. So let me talk to my boss. So she comes back a couple of days later and she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're going to have to pick. You have to have one or the other. And I'm like, well, if I don't have a type four, which is a manufacturer's license, I can't make it. <laughs> and if I have a, if I give up the rectifier's license, I can't sell it. So And I didn't have a distributor, but I had to give up the man the, the selling license because there's nobody else to manufacture it, and I have all yeah. the equipment. So, what the heck? You've only spent a few hundred thousand dollars on stills and equipment. And yeah, I'm sure I'll just give all that up. And yeah, like, so right. I had to fight and wow. struggle to find a distributor. And okay. so it took us a really long time. We worked with a couple small guys in the beginning, and that was probably the biggest challenge is because you know, just finding the right distributor for your product and what you're looking to do is is really instrumental in this business. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Because distributors are a very interesting part of this whole business. They're they're critical to getting your product out to market, and but you also have to sell them as much as they're selling your product. You have to get them into your door to want to pick you yeah, up. What, what's so, that process kind of like? How do you pick the right so, you know, for us, it was knocking on the big guy because yeah. I'm looking at the vision of I want to be the next Jim Beam someday. So yeah. I would just want to go with the big guy. And they look at you like, yeah, right. You, <laughs> you, you don't sell enough product to pay our gas bill. Like, right. So they're <laughs> Are like, going to yeah. send our top salesmen to uh, Mexico. Yeah. So they look at us and they're like, no, you know, you're just, you're not big enough. You know, and they sat down, they kind of instrumental in sending me in the right direction. I had a really good talk with Southern Wine and Spirits in the beginning four years ago, and they basically said no, but you know we'll keep our eye on you, and, and this is kind of the direction you should take, and maybe someday we'll pick you up. So we fought that, fought that, and we went to the small guys and presented itself you know, because California is such a huge state and where we're located, we're not located in the populous area. So there's not a lot of distribution here. And we're trying to do business in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but having a small distributor, most guys are really instrumental in their area. So to have a statewide person, it didn't work. So we had a guy in LA and then we were working with somebody in Sacramento and it just proved very difficult because a lot of restaurants don't want to buy one product from one distributor. It's it's just a lot of paperwork and headache for them and remembering to order and see another salesperson. So it was very difficult to get that out there and we struggled with it for the three years until Southern Wine and Spirits actually decided like they were going to bring us back. They would bring us on and and we've been with them little over just about a year now and it's been really good for us. So a lot of that then so you, your distributor will you know has the relationships at the restaurants but you know your job doesn't end once you hand it off to the distributor, right? That's no. you're, you're still responsible for promoting your product. product. Yeah, so the you're bill, part of their portfolio. But. Even though they purchased the product, it's still your product to okay. sell. Like it's just a legal fact that they're basically a delivery service. Yeah. And you know, they do their best that they can to sell, but they represent 2000 products. They can't focus on just one. Sure. So and they have a lot of pressure from the bigger guys. So really, you have to look at them as they're your delivery service. 
They're a key player in depending on which distributor and, and what relationships they have in, in the restaurant world and the retail world. So it's very key. But at the end of the day, it's your dollar that's going to sell the product, not theirs. And so you have to be prepared for that. And I think a lot of people that get in the business don't realize that. And for the smaller states, it's great because I think a lot of local people get behind it. But with California being such an animal and everybody from the big guys to the small guys want to do business here, it presents a big issue for all of us as we're all fighting for the same shelf space. So so what is your marketing strategy then? Um, how do you get your word out? Uh, do you use online campaigns? Do you try to create partnerships? How do you, you know, get the word out? Our, our biggest thing is feet on the ground. So I've brought on, we have about five salespeople that work the state. Just your own personal in-house uh, salespeople? Well, no. So they... Two or three of them are our in-house, but then we have some that also represent other brands. And so we kind of partner in a sense of to help pay the sales guy to have those people. So they'll rep two or three brands and we'll all split the cost of the sales rep. Oh, gotcha. But typically it's not a competitive product. So if they're repping my sweet potato vodka, then they might be selling you know, somebody else's brandy or, or a liqueur or something. But now that we're going to have more products, it's going to be a little more instrumental and we'll probably get to the point where we can have our own sales force, but it's expensive. So basically doing tasting events and doing some online marketing as well as just traveling myself. I'm on the road two to three days a week traveling as well as doing sales, not just working in the distillery. So a lot of people want to see the owner and it's hard. You know, I have my son and plus I have the distillery, plus I have to be on the road. So it's very time demanding. And uh, I just roll with the punches, man. Okay. But <laughs> you it, it's, have it's to, not, right? You have to, and yeah. it's but that's you know you have that vision, and you kind of gotta. Uh, I read a great quote by Mark Cuban once that said, "Work every day like somebody's trying to take it away from you," and that's pretty much what you have to do in this business. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> there is, they're trying to There's, take your shelf space. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right, literally, you're, literally, you're fighting for real estate. You're and, fighting yeah. for real estate and and recognition, mm-hmm. and so tasting it to people. And that's really how we get them to buy it because our products aren't cheap. We're in the $30 range on the vodka gin side of it. And then the the whiskey side of it, we're in the, the high 40s. So nobody's going to take that risk if they haven't tried the product. So we do a lot of free sampling at, you know, wherever we can just to let people know that, hey, try this product and you'll see the difference. Yeah. I think that's such a great story because you know so many people I think want to get into this business because they like you know they like working with the hand their hands they want to put their name on a label and put it on a bottle and they think that far through but they don't think about the three days a week that you're on the road and all the marketing that has to go into yeah. it and really building a brand. Yeah, it's seventy plus hours a week, but I'm used to that because that's what the farms always okay, right. demanded. <laughs> so. I had before an, dawn and yeah, yeah, it's up before yeah up before <laughs> dawn and go home at after dark. You know, but that's been real instrumental that work ethic that you know is I've been raised with and watching my dad and my uncle and my grandfather do that that's really is what helped us be successful at this because if you don't put the time in unless you have a multi-million dollar marketing budget okay sure it's the only you've got <laughs> so, that's basically you go. <laughs> your two your two ways you've got the the million dollar marketing budget to get the TV pro press or you do it hand ground and really that's where we're at doing the ground grassroots if you know road very cool. So if we get a little bit technical then, how did you come up with your mash bill then to create your whiskeys and your, you know, what was kind of your taste making process? How did you make sure you didn't have 10,000 gallons of vodka that only you would like, you know? Um, how did you develop those flavors? That's kind of the big if. So you just kind of come up with, I t- so we raised 
10 to 12 different varieties of sweet potatoes. And so I tried to distill all of them, got the flavor profiles of each of them. Some of them were good. Some of them were not. Some of them produced better than others as far as actual content wise. So it was kind of just instrumental in something that was, you know, had enough flavor that you could drink it on the rocks, but not overpowering enough where you couldn't put it in a cocktail. And because when it comes to vodka, most vodkas taste like rubbing alcohol. And I didn't want that. that I wanted to be different from that. So when I first started, I, I really came up with some that were almost too flavorful, that almost taste like tequila. When you would mix it in a screwdriver or a martini, you're like, you can't do this. So I had to kind of choose like which direction I was going to go. So I tried to find something that's very smooth and with a little bit of flavor, but enough to still be vodka because most people don't drink vodka on the rocks. So our goal is to change that, but we still know that most women and young people aren't the martini drinkers. So you have to make it mixable. And so that's kind of what I set out to do is make something that you could, you know, appease both demographics. And at the end of the day, you just have to have the knowledge that you're not going to please everybody. And it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but you can find your demographic. And that's all you, that's the best you can hope for, really. Yeah. So you tasted it and you tried to figure out what you thought would taste good. Did you bring in, did you like solicit friends to come in and yeah, help you out? Like, definitely. Hey, tell me what you think of this. I think you know, this is good. What do you think? Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. definitely, you, you taste your, your friends. And reason. my family is our big drinkers. So oh, okay. they would taste it and <laughs> happy to come over and help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but my friends and people that, you know, really were, that are connoisseurs of alcohol, I would taste them on it. Hey, what do you think of this? Uh, you know, and I would get their opinions. But at the end of the day, there's a millions of people out there. And at the end of the day, the best you can do is say, hey, look, hopefully there's enough people out there that like this because you can taste people locally all day long. But if you're going to make money, you have to appeal to the masses. And there's no way to really do that without just taking that risk. Okay. And, you got you to turn on the still and let yeah. the gallons come out. Yeah, and, just... and hopefully, you know, stay consistent with the product and hopefully people fall in love with it. And that's kind of the best you can hope for. And, you know, there's really no changing it after that. You, yeah. you know, you can make fine adjustments, little here and there, but for the most part, you got to stay consistent with sure. what you're doing, And which that's the great thing about not outsourcing anything. It gives us control over the whole thing. So we don't have to, you know, Although every batch, you can't make it taste identical, it, they're pretty close. Okay. And I don't think most people are going to recognize it. We recognize it because we taste it every day. Okay, <laughs> sure. You know when we know Tuesday when it tastes like, a little yeah, bit Yeah, this one's than, a little yeah. bit sweeter, but I think the average drinker isn't going to notice it. And and it's just, it's like wine. You can't make every batch taste sure. the same. You know, whiskey, it's the same thing. That's why a lot of the big guys blend barrels because you can't make every barrel taste identical because every barrel has its unique wood characteristics. So you try to do your best at keeping consistent. And sometimes you just get some really man, why can't they all taste like this? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, this but is perfect. This yeah. is so yeah. like, you want to take and you want to like make this a reserve batch. Mm-hmm. It's like, right. why, why does this one wow. taste so smooth, like so subtle and yeah. just awesome. And this one tastes good, but now you've but tasted now. this one. Sometimes it's frustrating because yeah, you get some really awesome stuff and you're like, Man, why can't it all be like, <laughs> like this? Yeah. What were the exact perfect barometric pressures and yeah, temperatures it, and everything that just combined? Uh, exactly. <laughs> and that's the problem with small batch distillation mm-hmm. is, you know, but it's also gives it the aspect for us to test and know, like we keep very detailed notes about what goes on. So we can always try to revert back to see, is there something that we did different or was it just the actual product that we started with? 
You know, because the sweet potatoes, they're aged up to 12 months. So as they age... Is that, is that in the, I'm sorry, my ignorance, is that just a normal course of raising a sweet potato? Well, do we you, do, we do, we don't typically, we age them because they, we have to store them. So okay, gotcha. It's, and it's actually a temperature controlled storage. So unlike a regular white Irish potato that you get off like a baked potato, those can go into cold storage. They can chill them and they can stay forever. Where a sweet potato, if you chill them, they go bad. So they have to be stored between 55 and 65 degrees. And we do get some spoilage because it's not a cold temperature. Mm-hmm. So, and as they age, they get sweeter. The actual, the sugar gets more prominent in them the older they get. And that's why typically right out of the field, they're not good for making alcohol. So we... There's an aging process depending on, and like I said, depending on the variety that we're using, it's different ages for each variety. So it's that's kind of instrumental, which is another expense that we have on top of making our product is the whole storage. You said the store your your sweet potatoes, which we would be storing them anyway. But the fact that you know my goal was to hopefully be able to use them right out of the field, so we would have no spoilage. But unfortunately, that doesn't work. Okay, (laughs) so. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's another <laughs> another expe- thing. Another thing you had to overcome. And, <laughs> yeah, but at least um, you have that, that that kind of 360 degree knowledge of you know how a sweet potato is grown. You know how to store it. You know that a certain amount of spoilage is going yeah, to happen. Exactly. And, and we can't. And the thing is, is we still have to hand process them because they're like, well, now you can just manually li- dig them and throw them in a bin. And no, nah, that's not the case. Every sweet potato. And what a lot of people don't understand about our product, which I feel gives it a fair price point versus the other brands out there that are much cheaper. But it literally, if you count the hands that go into a bottle of Corbin vodka, it's literally 100 hands. 50 people handle that bottle or the product before the bottle leaves the distillery. Because of the hand labor in the sweet potato, it's hand planted, hand picked, hand harvested, hand packed, hand put into the maceration part of it. Like it's all, it's all hand labor. Okay. And, and hand bottled. Like I saw and hand bottled yeah. as you saw. So it's, it's literally a labor intensive process. And to be at $30 and have all that labor, it makes you wonder, you know, our margins are very low, but we feel that's a fair price. And we hope as we make more bottles, it are, it'll make it better for us. But it's definitely the most labor-intensive alcohol out there. Yeah. And I'll put my money on on that with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it a hundred hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about a, a, part, a, a part of that process then. You're still, it's a very beautiful uh, copper still that you have back there. Mm-hmm. Where did you find it? How did you come up with How did you find a, a supplier for it? What was your process? So I like? kind of, I researched online and then I actually went and visited a few different distilleries and kind of, you know, looked into it, asking people what they liked. And I kind of took the vision of, you know, I I know I'm going to be making more than one product on this still. And it's a small one to start with, but I didn't want to, you know, invest in a really big one. And then it didn't all work. So I kind of started with the smallest I could with a vodka still. And, you know, it's been really good. I basically went to a couple different workshops and the Holstein still seemed to be the most advanced and easy, like, you know, there's not a whole lot to a still. It really isn't. But on the technical side of how they work, but the design, the engineering that goes behind something so simplistic of the way it actually works, where it just takes steam pressure, turns a liquid into vapor, and it goes through. But the engineering aspect of that is really key of how that still is designed. And I didn't know that part until I did some couple workshops. And, and then also, I went with them with their cleaning system, the way the still actually 
cleans itself with a high pressure system was really important to me because of the fact that we're going to be running multiple products through it. You need to wash it after every every time you use it. And I'm not going to get in there by hand and clean that thing. So making sure that the cleaning system on each, you know, each still was up to par. And so because I saw, you know, typical industry standard of the places that I went were really happy with the Holstein. That's why I ended up going with them. That's cool. So I, I guess, yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, a whole bunch, a lot, a lot of gin people talk about how difficult it is to get like the botanicals and the, and, and the oils out of the still before they can run something else through it. So I think that self-cleaning thing is a very good point. It saves you time and Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's important because especially if you're doing a neutral spirit like vodka, you don't want any residual oil in there because it's going to affect the flavor. So, you know, because you look at the cost of a cleaning system on a still and the guy in Lewis at Holstein like, dude, you don't want to order it without. Okay. <laughs> He's like, yeah. I promise you it's worth the money. And I'm like, really? And and I'm glad he talked me into it. Because, you know, me being green in the business, I had no... I'm sure. like, do we really Cleaning, need to, come we, on, I can clean it. Yeah, yeah, we can right. take the, clean it, like yeah. run some water through it. He's like, no, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. And so he goes, believe me, I just sold a still to somebody and the guy's kicking himself. He goes, I tried till I was blue in the face. Mm-hmm. He didn't get a cleaning system. And now he's just like... He's at his wit's end because you can't run anything else through it. And even if you're running the same product, eventually the thing needs to be clean. You know, you will get mash that will flow through the still, even though technically it shouldn't, you will get some mash that carries over. And so you need to clean it. And otherwise you start getting, you know, mold and and things that grow in there that even though it's copper, it still can grow. So yeah, it's a fascinating point. Tell me a little bit about your bottle design. How did you come up with that? Did you work with a bottle designer to help you uh, create it? Yeah, so um, we worked with a company out of um, Napa. And oh, okay. they there one benefit of being in California is you have access to, to a lot of different designers from for the you know the wine industry. And so we worked for the company up there and they were very instrumental and in, you know, I kind of told them what we wanted something, you know, because we started, we were looking at starting in Vegas. So I wanted something classy and but yet classic that was an eye catcher. Something unique because that's, you know, in the vodka world, bottling packaging is huge. It's all well, a clear spirit otherwise. Yeah. So it, and it has and to stand out. It yeah. has to stand out. And it's kind of like wine. Vodka is like there's a million vodkas on the shelf. So what's going to make yours different? So we needed something that would be an eye catcher that would draw the people in to pick it up and see, oh, wow, it's also made from sweet potatoes. So we custom designed a bottle, which if I would have known now what I knew then, I probably would have never done it. But okay. <laughs> it was very difficult process. Really? At least our bottle. It's very detailed, as you can see in the center section of it. Mm-hmm. And so we went through three companies before we actually found one in Italy that could make it. So oh, we started okay. in, in Mexico. I actually went to a Canadian company. And one of the companies in Italy was the only one that could actually perfect the bottle. Wow. So it was a year. <laughs> a year in the design and a year in the making. To So almost two years with that thing trying to perfect it and if i hadn't had all the money wrapped up in the design i would have given up on it and i'm really glad we didn't but in hindsight in yeah, hindsight sure. but if i knew what i knew now i would be like heck no heck no, like, no <laughs> yeah, way man yeah, like right. the cost of this thing and what the headache we've been through and because mm-hmm. yeah. you have to get your own uh custom mold right? you have to and, buy the molds and then you have to pay for a run at the gla- yeah. yeah it's it's kind of talking about that what was it like to get your own custom gla- so it was the mold costs are very pricey anywhere from twenty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars for a mold and then you're looking at custom you know it's a minimum where in america and i really wanted american glass that was my goal well to go to a company in a, in the united states at least the ones we were able to source 
it was a minimum of 250,000 bottle run. Well, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> on top of a mold, okay. like, sure. I'm like, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. that costs more than my distillery almost. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it made no sense. So yeah. we were working with the Napa based company. We were introduced to a glass broker out of Napa as well. And, and she brought us into a company in Italy, which 30,000 minimums, which is still a lot. Okay. But, but for us, 220,000 fewer. Than, yeah. yeah. And it was, so it was a, you know, it was a, bite the bullet but we're here and i really love the bottle and so many people love it so we're i'm really glad we did it but it was one of those things like after the fact i was like i don't know that this was worth it now i would say it different i would say i'm glad we did it but for the first two years i was kicking (laughs) myself thinking man did i really make the right decision but i went with my gut and my gut proved right and i'm really happy with it now but yeah it was it's just one of those things you just don't know you know and being new to the industry, like you're saying, it's another one of the things that you learn. You think, well, I want a distinctive bottle. Here's a design. Go make it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole process there's a whole to it. Economy and behind that. Too. Yeah. And, and just a real cost behind it that's not, it's really prohibitive to a lot of people. And, you know, and, and if I was to tell a small person getting into it today, I would think twice about custom glass because it could make or break you. And for me, I was lucky enough to have another source of income you know, on the farming side of it yeah. to do it. But if, if I was definitely a new guy, craft distiller getting into a custom glass is not the way to go. It's something you can kind of grow into. You later. would grow yeah. into it later, which is kind of a, a trade-off because if people get to know your brand, then how do you go change your bottle? You know, so we've fought that with designs. And so the great thing about having our own glass is people recognize a bottle right away as our product. But we have one, we have some that are silk screen and some that are paper labeled. So when they see that bottle, they know that that comes from Corbin, you know, or Sweet Potato Spirits or Corbin Vodka, Corbin Cash Whiskey. I mean, you won't see that bottle on anybody, anybody else's product. So it's. Was, was your label kind of similar then? Did you work with a label designer to help you come the, up with that? The label was- designer that we originally started with is the first label that we ran actually sourced was the one that designed the glass. Oh, okay. So it was kind of instrumental. And then we kind of moved on when we did the the whiskey branding. We came with another company called Ignite out of Oregon. And it's funny, like we've been really instrumental working with Dave Bourne and Ignite uh, Advertising. And they've, they've done all our Corbin all our Corbin labels and from the whiskey to the vodka. And I've never met Dave in person. I've been working with him for four years. (laughs) And it's just when you meet the right people that just get it, like we send over a project to them and it's awesome. Like it always comes back and it's very few changes, if any at all. He just, we just get each other. It's kind of like having my, my big brother over there who grew up (laughs) with me. Like when you give them a, you know, cause there's such, you know, methodic, that goes into a label design and you know you can go back and forth with for months and months or even a year on something when you don't necessarily see eye to eye with the designer and for him he's just always got it so it's been very helpful for us and and cost effective because there's no always never a bunch of changes so yeah it goes back to having a good team then you know it is and and being able to trust the people that you work with yeah you hit the nail on the head and that and Mm -hmm. that's what this is you know there's no i in team and this definitely started with me but it was wasn't built just by me. It's been a really instrumental team effort from the people that we hire to my employees. Like I couldn't have, you know, I wouldn't be here where, where I'm at 
I'm the founder. I started it, but without the team, we'd still be we wouldn't be here. Yeah. <laughs> you be know? one guy with a still. And, yeah, one guy uh, with thirty thousand bottles. Yeah, his thirty thousand <laughs> bottles and sitting right. here. So you know, it definitely is a team building process. So looking back now, four years in, you have multiple products out there. You're you're getting better distribution. Have you had like an aha moment yet? Like that that moment where you're like, well, you know, I might actually be doing. You know, it, you know, it, you? I think it's all kind of coming together. Today was kind of actually, it's funny, like. Four years today, it's Corbin's birthday. Oh. So today's his birthday. Today's four years that we first ran our first batch. It's kind of funny that you happen to land here. We're bottling the first, basically the world's first sweet potato whiskey. What? Yeah. And talking to my distributors today and, and my sales guys, and it, it, today's kind of an aha moment. Like we've gotten BevMo, we've gotten our Save Mart chains, our Whole Food chains. Everybody's kind of come together on this year number four. And and even though we have a long way to go, it's definitely it's starting to feel good before it less than stress. Like I know we're on our way. I really feel like not that we're anywhere near to being where we want to be, but we definitely made an impact. And I think through the distribution, through the retailers, they're starting to see the value in our product and our story. And uh, that feels really good. And it's been hard to get there, but I, <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to feel more comfortable, even though we're not necessarily profitable yet. It's mm-hmm. it just feels good that people see the value in it, and that's that's the big recognition and yeah. kind of a you know a humbling aspect, I should say. Mm-hmm. That's that's really awesome. How has owning your own distillery then? Now, now now that you're on the production side of things, how has owning your own distillery kind of affected the way that you go out to bars or restaurants? Has it you know when you when you go to a bar? Are you kind of on, you know, or are you in manufacturer mode? Are you looking behind the bar, seeing what vodkas they have, or can you go to a bar or a restaurant and just kind of relax? No, um, I can go and relax because yeah. I'm a big foodie. So okay. when I go to restaurants, it's <laughs> yeah. like it's funny because I was a partier at one day, I guess, in a sense. As <laughs> in far Las as Vegas, right? yeah. <laughs> but I've been more of a I'm more of a connoisseur now. So, but. I'm more of a foodie than anything. So I kind of find myself trying to pair what do I feel like drinking? But it's first, what do I feel like eating? And then then I decide because my food comes first. I'm a huge okay, foodie, yeah. especially <laughs> right. being a farmer. Like I love fresh everything. And and so going to that, I kind of pick out my food and then right. and then okay, now what do I want to pair with this? So it's interesting, like wine pairings, but I'm, you know, more of a spirits guy. So I'm trying to be the connoisseur of and it's, you know, I can't always drink my own stuff. So I like other people's products. And that's been the great thing about the industry. Being the small guy, it's introduced me to other small guys yeah. and really craft products that are out there, you know, and so it, it gives me an appreciation for what to try other stuff than my own. Well, so kind of on that last, uh, on that note, and my, my last question will be, um, if when, when people go and they pick up a bottle of Corbin vodka or Corbin gin or <laughs> your rye or your whiskey or any of your other products, is there one is it like one recipe, one way to drink it that you think would really be, you know, how do you pair your spirit? What would you recommend to someone? They pull that bottle down, should they drink it on the rocks? Is there a recipe that you really like that you think nails all the subtlety of your flavors? So, uh, can you share one with us? Yeah, well, for me, and I'll just, I tell this to everybody, my way that I want to create my products is to drink on the rocks. Okay. Neat or on the rocks. I feel like neat, you get a really good flavor the best flavor profile you're going to get is drinking it neat and you know just right out of the bottle let it breathe mix you know spin it around and and give it let it aerate and drink, treat it kind of like a wine then, treat it right? like a wine and you know because that's i set out to to make spirits that you could drink neater on the rocks and because i'm not a big cocktail guy not that i don't like them i don't like all the sugar my 
you know, I don't like the sugary sweet drinks. So something like an old fashioned or a Manhattan are perfect for me because I don't like all the, the stuff. But um, still, it like when I drink other people's rye whiskeys or something, like I want to be able to enjoy it on the rocks. And so that's kind of how I've set out to create our products is for me, it's if you can drink it on the rocks, then you should be able to enjoy it in any cocktail. So that's kind of how I educate people on us. Is, and when we taste people on our products, we taste them neat. We always, our vodka, we taste it neat. The gin, the whatever we're tasting, it's always neat. And that lets people see, hey, you're drinking it at full strength and you're not getting that bad alcohol effect. So it's still strong and it's still going to be hot, but it's not going to have that burn or the take your breath away effect. And and that's what we want to educate our customers on is, is to see that's the difference in quality between our products and a lot of different ones out there. Very cool. Well, Dave, where, where can people find your um, spirits then right now? Where are you distributed? Uh... So statewide, uh, state-wise, we're in three states. We're in California, Georgia, and Tennessee. And we decided to take on the two smaller states, kind of instrumental reasons. We felt like we could manage them, which it's been a little tough. It's hard to manage a state, even as small as Tennessee and, and Georgia, far yeah. away. Keeping good salespeople and, and just the market itself, because you know we're not a big money company. So we don't have the backing to just throw money in faraway states. We're here. I'm very instrumental and I'm on the road a lot. Yeah. You can just hop in your car and drive. drive and, yeah. I can drive to LA in <laughs> yeah. a few hours or San Francisco. I can't drive to Georgia. Yeah. For so <laughs> yeah. it, it's hard, you know, sure. but state wise, that's where we're at. But in, as far as retailers, uh, nationally, total wine and more throughout those states, BevMo, Whole Foods, Save Mart throughout the valley. We've picked, you know, a lot of liquor stores along the way. And then and then we're picking up a lot of restaurants. You'll find us mostly in higher end establishments because of our price point. But you, that's where you're going to see us. You're not going to find us in, you know, the franchised Applebee's and stuff. Although we did, we do have Cool Hand Luke's, which oh, okay. they have seven locations up and down the state. And they've been really good for us. We didn't think one of the chain restaurants would pick us up. And, yeah, and, yeah. and Cool Hand Luke's has been really... Um, they're really a support local company. And so I think that's why they picked us up. They put us on our drink menu. And so we're in all their locations. So I can't say we're not in chain restaurants because we actually are. I forgot. So (laughs) Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for coming out and visiting. It's great for especially all the way from New York. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. My pleasure.